Hey, Rachel, what are you doing? Oh, hey, Miles. I was just sorting through our backlog of listener questions. Oh, man, there are a ton of those. There are literally hundreds. People are really confused about the X-Men. I don't know how we're going to get through all of these. Uh, what if we did an episode that was nothing but Q&A? We couldn't hit them all, but we could at least make a dent in the backlog. Okay, I'm game. Sweet. Let's do this. What have we got first? Okay, let's see. Let me scroll back to the top. Um, okay, so Sean on Twitter asks, what's the deal with the X-Men? What? Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 11th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Over the last 10 episodes, you've been sending us your questions. And oh man, do you have a lot of them. So this week, we're going to take a break from early Claremont to dive headfirst into the question jar. I wish we had a real question jar. Welcome to the first Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men All Questions Spectacular, listeners. Hope you survive the experience. So the first question is the classic with a twist. An anonymous Tumblr user wants to know who would win in a fight between Rachel and Miles? Who would give a better Claremontian explanation of how they fight and what they are doing while fighting? Okay, so you and I are fighting. So let's see. Uh, what do we start with? What are our resources? Um, I mean, we share a bank account. We share an apartment. We're working from pretty much the same pool materially. Well, that being said, I mean, we each have our individual stuff, right? I do have a... I, my students gave me a wakizashi when I left when I left the college I was teaching at. I have a replica of Stormbreaker, Beta Ray Bill's Mystic Uru Metal Hammer. Damn it. Weapons-wise, it sounds like you're a little bit better equipped. Okay, so what about uh, just combat ability? I take martial arts and you don't. True. I, I did back in college, but it's been many, many years. I'm pretty sure you could take me down without really breaking a sweat. Yeah, I'm not actually very good, but I, I you know, I, I feel like I'm, I'm at a stage where I could like seriously damage someone if they stood really still for it. So then then strategy and tactics. And I think I have by far and away the upper hand here because I do work that's logistically based and I'm also just a lot meaner than you. Well, that being said, I think I could use the counter to that to my advantage. I mean, let's assume that, okay, presumably for fighting, we're being brainwashed or something. So we don't really have the ethics we normally do. So I think I'm a, a relatively charismatic person. I'm, you know, good at kind of emotionally uh, affecting people in, in positive ways. So I could use that. I could give, do the puppy dog eyes thing, the puppy dog beard thing. And I could uh, really bring down your defenses and make it so you wouldn't want to hit me. And then I'd totally like kidney punch you or something. But here's the thing. I think you're too nice. I think you are the guy who, when he gets possessed, is still going to find a way to pull his punches. Now, I think it's probably around this point that as these things tend to go, we realize that we're being manipulated and we actually are on the same side and it's all a misunderstanding. And we team up and we fight whoever's manipulating us. And I, I presume, just based on what we've been talking about, that this is probably either Eric the Red or an editorially mandated crossover event. Well, every time Eric the Red shows up, he's really a different person under the mask. So in this case, it could be an editorially mandated crossover event disguised as Eric the Red. Oh my god, are we able to team up and deconstruct it? I feel like that's what we've been trying to do these last 10 weeks, and I think we've done a decent job. So the second half of that question is, who would who would you know give a better Claremontian explanation? The answer depends on the team-up. The thing with, with the passages and the scripted parts of the, the podcast is that for the most part, I write them and Miles reads them, because you're way, way better at doing voices. Thank you, thank you. But I'm pretty good at mimicking Claremontian prose. This is going to be our team-up move. This is our fastball special here. Right, excellent. That's what we eventually use to defeat Eric the Red, whoever he may be under the mask. So, next question. This is another question from Anonymous. Anonymous asked a lot of questions. I'm going to pretend this is all the same person, okay? Okay. So, everyone knows that Scott's glasses and visor to control his eye beams are made of ruby quartz. How was it discovered that this would work? What Sunglasses Hut sold him his handy laser-blocking Ray-Bans? So, this was Mr. Sinister. 
do we want to talk about Mr. Sinister yet? I'm going to talk about Mr. Sinister. Do it. A little bit. Mr. Sinister is this creepy dude who's basically effectively manipulated most of Scott's life, including opening an orphanage so that he could get him there and just experiment on him for multiple years when he was a kid, which was how he figured out that Ruby Quartz was what blocked the I-beams. This is revealed in X-Factor number 39 in the middle of the Inferno event. Actually, in a really, it's a really rad crossover. So Isaac asks, I've recently decided to start reading X-Men comics. I've always loved X-Men from the 90s cartoon series and now want to delve into all the lore, but I have no idea how comics work. God, do I feel you. If I want to start from the beginning, how can I do that without purchasing a collector's edition of early copies? Are there reprints that are affordable? Also, are they all labeled in chronological order or release date? Or are they all labeled as part of separate series that I've heard about? Any information would be great. Love the show, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, so this is actually a question we've gotten from a number of different people. There's not really a clean answer. What I will say, so so far in the podcast, we've been covering the original X-Men book, the one that's now known for the most part as Uncanny X-Men. If you just isolate it to that, it's an easier question to answer. There is a, a series of volumes that Marvel published called The Essentials Line. Now, it's cheap. It's about 20 bucks for 30 issues, which for Marvel is cheap. It's also black and white and printed on newsprint. So, like, you're not going to get the best quality in the world, but if you're just trying to get the content without breaking the bank, that's a good way to do it. They've, they've canceled the line after 11 volumes, but 11 times 30, that's a whole lot of content still waiting for you. And a lot of libraries carry these. A lot of libraries carry those, and a lot of libraries carry the big collector editions. So if you're, it's important to you to read them physically, but you don't have a lot of money to invest in them, talk to your librarian. See if they have them, or they can get them for you on interlibrary loan. Now, as far as other books, especially once you start doing books other than Uncanny X-Men, a lot of popular storylines are going to be collected into trade paperbacks, also called graphic novels, depending on who you ask. Another option, which has its pluses and minuses, is something called Marvel Unlimited. This is a subscription service that Marvel offers, which has a whole lot of back issues. So, for instance, in the research we've been doing, we have a big hardcover of the early Uncanny stuff, but we've also, when one of us is reading that, the other's been usually reading the issues through Marvel Unlimited. You know, you can read it through a tablet or a computer screen or, I guess, a phone, but that would suck. And what we've found is that if you have a tablet, Marvel Unlimited is probably worth it. If you will be reading it on a monitor that is shorter in height than a comics page, don't do Marvel Unlimited because the zoom function in the browser version of it is completely broken right now. It's optimized for tablets in ways that make it extremely difficult to use on a desktop computer. That being said, if you read a lot of comics, especially older ones, and if it's within your means, a tablet, I found, is a really, really good way to read comics. You're going to have a little bit of shrinkage on your page, but it's pretty good. If you Google chronological X-Men... There are people who have gone and basically assembled lists of every series and how they interact. You might need to do some hunting on Google. I don't have links to this on hand, but if you use that as a search string, you'll find some resources. There are obviously other options. We can't officially discuss or condone those. One of us works at a comics publisher. You Use your Googles. <laughs> exactly. Okay, this is a question from L. Collins. In the first few episodes of the podcast, if I didn't know you two, I don't think I would have been able to tell from listening that you're partners in life as opposed to just in podcasting. In more recent episodes, it's become more overt that you're together. Was that a conscious choice to just present as ex-bros at first, or was it just a matter of naturally being more guarded at first and then getting more comfortable? Oh, wow. We are diving diving into the deep end here. Um, <laughs> the answer to this is kind of yes and no. The first and foremost part is that we are totally ex-bros. Like, we didn't deliberately go into this being like, we're going to totally conceal the fact that we're in a relationship. And it actually stunned me after a recent episode when a bunch of people on Twitter, you know, were asking like, oh my God, are you guys dating now? Um, <laughs> the actual answer to that question is that we've been married for nine years. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we're used to people we know in real life and people we talk to knowing that we're a couple because anyone who's known us for any length of time 
has has met us largely in context of each other. And it didn't really occur to us going in that we this would be for a whole audience who was unfamiliar with, with us as a unit, who was familiar maybe with me through my work, because I'm, I'm a lot more active online and, and social media. I mean, I think a lot of people assumed we were just really good friends. And I mean, part of that is that, yeah, we are. Like, the way we talk on the podcast is the way we talk. We've known each other since we were, like, what? Um, oh, like 11 or 12, something? yeah. yeah. Uh, we started the podcast just because we had these conversations anyway, and we're like, well, maybe someone will give a shit. And apparently a couple people do. I think this is a less, less a thing for you, but I am... I am I'm super weird and guarded and private about my personal life <laughs> online, and this has been sort of a steep comfort curve for me. Mm-hmm. But so far, no one's tried to assassinate us or clone us or, you know, send us through time or whatever. So, so far, so good, right? The one downside is that now that we've acknowledged this, we cut off the options for um, podcast shipping wars, which I think would be hilarious. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, we're poly. People can still do the shipping wars. It'd be great. Okay, I'm into it. <laughs> okay, Zach asks... I was just curious what your guys' favorite spinoff team is, like New Mutants, X-Force, or Excalibur. Oh, man. Oh, that's a really good question. Okay, so we've just been talking about Uncanny X-Men so far, um, and we love Uncanny X-Men, don't get us wrong. But what we have, what we do have at home is complete runs of both New Mutants, which I instigated, and Excalibur, which Rachel instigated. And we spent college tracking these back issues down. Those are two of our all-time favorite series. I really love the first X-Factor series, too, the Louis Simonson one. But, I mean, if I personally had to pick a favorite, like, of one of the mainstream series, not just some weird miniseries, I think I would have to say New Mutants. Oh, I think weird weird miniseries should count, too. What's your favorite weird miniseries? Fallen Angels. Absolutely Fallen Angels. I think I'm going to have to go with X-Club. That's also reasonable. We are, I don't know when it's going to be, listeners, but we are going to cover both of those miniseries in depth, and we're going to get so excited when we talk about them, you have no idea. Yeah, there's actually a frequently asked question that we're tossing in that no one specifically asked this time, but this sort of, this this mashes up a whole bunch that relates to that. Yeah, so uh, specifically, the, the, the general question is, will you guys be covering name of book? You know, this book or this story, Rex or Y or Z? In general, the answer is probably. In our first episode, we talked about this a little bit in scope. As far as we're concerned, X-Men, for our purposes, central X-Books, books that spin directly off or connect directly to them and star characters whose relationship or background in the X-Men is central to the story. So, you know, Excalibur would count, X-Force would count, Fallen Angels, I think, would count because it's, it's mostly X-Men characters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, X-Club, X-Factor, New Mutants. The catch, as Miles said, is there is just a whole whole lot of this. So we're putting this together in what we hope is sort of a logical order. We're looking at both where things fit chronologically and how they fit together idea-wise. So while we know that a lot of you are really excited about hearing us talk about your favorite character or you know, deconstruct your favorite arc. Trust us that there is an order to things. Indeed. And there will be a couple things that we're just not going to cover uh, in, in as much depth as others. Part of that is just like, if we don't think a story contributes enough or is good enough to worry about, we'll talk about it, but minimally as compared to some of the other stuff. Yeah, there are going to be things that we gloss over. And I mean, again, in a lot of ways, this podcast is sort of our, our priorities and the way we talk about X-Men. And we're trying to be thorough. We're trying to make this appeal to a larger audience. But ultimately, for example, like we're probably going to spend a lot more time on Excalibur than X-Force because we love it. One episode per issue of Excalibur. You heard it here first. This is actually just going to become Rachel and Miles extol the virtues of Excalibur. Extol the excellence of Excalibur? Yes. Even better. What's the next question? I love them. They're the best. Okay, the next question is from Angry Knife Man. Hi, Angry Knife Man. Is that just Wolverine? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, so uh, apparently Wolverine asks... 
Has the evolution of Kitty's powers as shown in Days of Future Past, I assume the film, ever been referenced in other comics? It seems like it should have been, what with the secondary mutation thing later on. So the catch with that is that in the comics, Kitty has never had any time travel power. She's been involved in some time travel stuff, obviously, like the comic of Days of Future Past and some later Excalibur stuff, but what she's doing in the movie is she's sort of substituting for a different character that does not appear in the movie, that being Rachel Summers. Uh, One of Rachel Summers' powers, in addition to telepathy and telekinesis, is that she can um, do what happened in the Days of Future Past movie. She can send people's consciousnesses uh, through time. And that ends up maturing into straight-up time travel sometimes. Her powers are a mess, though. They're they're all over the place. You know, it was cool seeing Kitty able to do that. I personally would have liked to see Rachel Summers in the movie. I can understand how she would have made an already complex movie even more complex. But then it couldn't have been all about Wolverine. Well, you know, there is that. But anyway. I cannot wait until he dies. (laughs) Um, Okay, so next question. This is from Marco Ramo. What other geek fandoms are you guys a part of or partake in? It sounded like you guys were or are into RPGs and Game of Thrones. Are you guys into Star Wars or Star Trek or Harry Potter or video games? I'm going to sort of not exactly answer this question. I'm going to change the question because we're not really involved in organized fandom for a number of reasons. Um, First and foremost of which is that we're cranky and antisocial. Also, we're both publishing and comics and media professionals, and that can be a sticky space to walk. There is one exception to that. Right. That is an old 90s Nickelodeon TV show called The Adventures of Pete and Pete. This podcast actually came out of a bunch of Pete and Pete stuff that we did that we had enough fun working on that we decided to stay together. So we made a Pete and Pete tribute zine a few years ago called Waiting for October that went from this, we're going to do this little fun jerk-off project, to, oh my god, we got Joe Quinones to draw the cover. There's an actual fold-out pinup. And the creators of Pete and Pete just emailed us, which led to us organizing a, uh, a Portland Pete and Pete reunion show. So I think that I think that counts as being active in fandom. I think it does. Yeah, we were in way over our heads with that, but we somehow managed to survive. And I don't know, people seem to dig it. So that was cool. Other than that, there's a lot of stuff that we're fans of. We both like liking things. So, I mean, I'm thinking of how to prioritize this. I guess we could start with the stuff we have tattoos from. Oh, right. Um, okay, you go first. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I should qualify. Mine are, my, all my comics tattoos are like books I've edited or worked on. Um, and what I have right now, I have the Finder symbol from the series by Carlos V. McNeil, which is is really, honestly, probably my single favorite comic of all time. Um, I've got The Blackbird from, from Alabaster by Caitlin Kiernan and Steve Lieber, and I have a tattoo from Hellboy that's not of Hellboy. It's um, the lilies from a story called The Nature of the Beast. Um, that's one of, still one of my favorite books, and it was like it was the first series that I really did a lot of work on. So uh, my first tattoo is actually the logo to a DC Comics character called Starman, the incarnation from the 90s, Jack Knight, which is one of my favorite books. So I have sort of the logo from that on my back. Yeah, Starman is amazing. That's actually the series we're currently collecting. All of. And then I have a Mass Effect Paragon symbol on my left arm. So I'm I'm definitely, I mean, we're both video gamers. I'm probably the more active You're video gamer. You're such a good guy. I would totally win in a fight. I, I would be the Vega to your shepherd. <laughs> James Vega? James Vega, cool bro. Oh man, he's not renegade. Well, I guess he is. Anyway, he's point renegade. being. He's just, he's like nice renegade. Yeah. When we were wee tiny nerdlings, we made friends over loving the same books. So, and, and those are, are ones that have followed us through. So, you know, a lot of science fiction and fantasy. Susan Cooper's Dark is Rising sequence. Lloyd Alexander, The Chronicles of Perdean. Um, uh, Hitch- Hitchhiker's Guide, of Yeah, course. man. Oh, in eighth grade, you lent me your, your big, enormous Hitchhiker brick that had the Zephad Beeblebrock short story I'd never read, and it was the coolest thing. <laughs> um, other comics that we like, uh, right now, uh, Rat Queens and Saga are both freaking killing it uh jason aaron's thor in marvel is awesome sex criminals yeah sex criminals is a great comic um i'm really loving lumberjanes uh we're both into doctor who uh rachel's more of an old who fan than me but we peter davison forever and i will fight you over it 
See, I like I like number eight. I like Paul McGann. Yeah, but I grew. Did you grow up with it as a little kid? Uh, it was Tom Baker when I was a kid. Okay, yeah. See, we had we had VHS tapes, and and Davison was always sort of the one who who I impressed on, like like a baby duck. <laughs> um, and beyond that, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm definitely a video gamer. Silent Hill and uh, Mass Effect are my my big franchises. That oh I really man, dig. Silent Hill forever. Yeah, and Rachel, you're really into a couple of TV shows as well. I am a super diehard community fan. I am getting that level of into leverage, and um, my my ability to fall hard for Doom TV shows. Is, is apparently, you know, remaining consistent. Although at least with Leverage, like I started watching it after it had already been canceled. TV-wise, uh, Battlestar Galactica, the new one is my, my favorite show. Um, I'm a big fan of all the Buffyverse stuff as well. Joe Streckard asks, in your reading of things, what are the most important ways that the industry censorship of the Comics Code Authority influenced the X-Men? Well, Sauron, obviously. <laughs> because he couldn't be a bat, so of course they made him a pterodactyl thing. This is a hard question to answer directly because it's really hard to know, you know, what decisions might have been made otherwise. But it does bring up one thing that's a really cool little piece of trivia. So the Comics Code Authority, um, if you're not familiar... It was basically a self-policing code of rules that the comics industry came up with when it was under a lot of flack for supposedly corrupting children. So essentially it meant that you had to keep your content kind of tame in certain ways, like you couldn't see authority figures being incompetent, and you know you couldn't have certain levels of violence and stuff like that. Marvel and DC used it for years and years and years and years and years. I think and Archie still does. But Marvel was the first big company to really say, hey, we're not going to do the Comics Code Authority anymore. Like We're not going to put that little stamp on our covers that shows that our content is okay according to those rules. Um, and this was in an X-Men related run. It was actually on Peter Milligan and Mike Allred's run of X-Force. Now, you know X-Force as the comic with, you know, everyone with a lot of pouches and big guns and crazy over-the-top 90s stuff. At one point, that comic, as we know it, was canceled, and it was replaced with a comic by the same name. Um, I think it kept the same numbering, even, uh, which was sort of about this reality sh- TV show with all these, like, teenage mutants and... Um, it's better known as and was later retitled as Ecstatics. Right, exactly. Like, Princess Di joins the team at one point. Well, it's just a, a thinly veiled Princess Di stand-in. Right. Um, but yeah, and it was this really violent, dark comic that was very, like, very much black humor, very, very tongue-in-cheek, but really dark. It's and, really fun. It's worth tracking down if you've not read it. Yeah, and the levels of violence in it and the sexual content were such that Marvel realized there was no freaking way it would pass the Comics Code Authority rules. So they're like, hey, we're not doing that anymore. And they didn't. And there were really no negative consequences because no one was freaking out about, you know, comics corrupting your your, your picket fence swipe red children anymore. Yeah, I think, I think they had moved on to video games and Marilyn Manson by then. Exactly. Next question. I think this is a good one for you to answer, Rachel. From Sam Williams. What's your take on Ultimate X-Men? You didn't mention it during your episode that covered alternate takes on the Golden Age years. Not that it's Golden Age at all, really, but it does feature the origins and early days of the team. Is it too Millari for you, or could you just get past the sometimes unnecessarily grim darkness and enjoy it still? Okay, I'm going to well actually you really briefly and say Silver Age, because there was no X-Men in the Golden Age. That was much earlier. It's important. It's how we tell when things happen. (laughs) Um, Okay, so... I'm not an Ultimate X-Men fan. The reason that I'm not an Ultimate X-Men fan actually has nothing to do with the quality of the series. It's that I went into it having read a ton of X-Men with a pretty clear idea of what I wanted from X-Men stories. And I found Ultimate X-Men pretty unsatisfying given that. I know a number of people for whom it was you know, their first X-Men book who really liked it. It does get pretty hard into grimdark. My understanding, I've only read maybe like the first 80 issues of it. Uh, my understanding is that once the Ultimate Universe continuity starts getting in, it really stops achieving what it set out to do, which was being, you know, a simple, followable, you know, reimagining um, that you didn't have to have been reading 30 years of comics to get. So I'm going to completely cop out. I'm not going to recommend one way or another. I'm going to say I didn't really like it. It's got some good moments, um, but... 
I think there are better places to start and better series to read. So Rachel Whitaker asks, is there a good source out there for keeping track of storylines and crossovers through the various X series? I was reading the Legion Quest story arc last night on my tablet and got a little lost. You know, that is an excellent question and another one without a great ooh, answer. Ooh, I, I have a quick one. Okay. So did the X-Men. Hey! It's easier for some arcs than others. So if you're doing kind of a crossover slash event like Legion Quest, chances are that's going to have been collected into a trade paperback at some point. And at that point, what I usually do is I just go to Amazon or whatever and look at the description and see what issues it collects. And that right there can be really useful for telling you what your reading order is going to be. If you've got access to a physical trade paperback, that's not always listed somewhere obvious, but you can usually find it in the indicia if nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're looking at an era like, say, the late 90s, where Uncanny X-Men and Adjectiveless X-Men were basically alternating, the story would just go from one issue of one to the issue of the other to the issue of the first, back and that's forth. That's so evil. It's really evil, and it's really confusing, and honestly, I don't know that there's a great answer to that question. You might be able to find a chronology online, you might not, you might have to figure it out from like when the comics were published. It's rough. There's a place that i would start that search though and that is uncannyxmen.net is a labor of love that will eternally put this podcast to shame i don't know who's responsible for it i assume it must be a group project just because of the sheer volume of information there it has character bios it has cover galleries and it's got summaries and chronologies of almost every storyline and almost every series including ones that take crossover storylines and put them in order of events rather than issues within any given series their summaries are loving to an extent that often means they take longer to read than the actual comics do <laughs> but it's a great resource if you're just looking for a way to put things in order and for a jumping off point or to spend like four days just you know looking at excalibur covers which um I would absolutely do. Short version, there are ways, but you have chosen a rather challenging franchise to jump into in that regard. All right, next question. Orion asks, is Mystique's queerness official canon? It is. Um, it was subtext for a long time, but it has since become actual text. I believe it was confirmed before this, but uh, just off the top of my head, I know for sure that it's mentioned um, textually and specifically in Astonishing X-Men number 51. Right. That was a Marjorie Lou run? It is, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was also uh, the, I believe, the first um, gay wedding yeah, in the Marvel that's, Universe. Yeah, that's North Star's wedding. Uh, okay, what's next? Uh, Senverbindra asks, "Someone please explain the siege perilous to ooh, me." Ooh, ooh, I got this. I got this. I mean, I had it anyway because you asked the question. Um, so <laughs> this is from one of my favorite eras of X Men. So I get really excited when I get to talk this is, about this. This is also a big Excalibur thing. Yeah. Um, so the siege perilous. So where that name comes from is that was the empty seat at King Arthur's Round Table, and um, of course. Uh, in Marvel mythology, the Arthurian thing is kind of a big deal. You see it in Alan Moore's uh, Captain Britain run. You see it in Excalibur. And Which you, is, you know, called Excalibur, well, so yeah, you didn't exactly. see that on the tin. Um, and yeah, and there's some Arthurian stuff that comes into X-Men, um, specifically around the uh, Fall of the Mutants storyline. So uh, we meet a character named Roma in this storyline. I mean, she's been around in the Marvel Universe before, but the X-Men meet her, I should say. So Roma is the daughter of Merlin. Yes, that Merlin. Um, and she's also the Omniversal Guardian. I wonder if I can get my title at work changed from System Administrator to Omniversal Guardian. What do you think? Um, I think it's worth a try. It's okay. a small department. That's true. So anyway, she gives the X-Men this crystal uh, after they go through a big battle to help her out. It's, we'll, we'll get there. This crystal that makes a sort of door, like a portal, and it's called the Siege Perilous. And the way this thing works is essentially you go through and these kind of cosmic forces like judge the balance of your life, whether you've been a good person or a bad person or what things need to be wiped clean versus this sort of cosmic justice. And then they just fuck with you. But basically it spits you out in kind of a new life. 
at some point in this arc, this is the Australia arc of the X-Men, which is actually my, my favorite arc, probably. Rogue and ends up going through it and Colossus. Like, everything is just going to shit. And most of the it's X-Men It's how Psylocke gets it. her current body, right? Uh, yeah, when she goes through the Siege Parallel, she comes out and gets turned into the, the other body and becomes a ninja instead of just, like, a, a British supermodel. There's one exception to this, who's Quentin Quire, who every time he tries to go into it just gets spit straight back out. <laughs> because Quentin Quire, A, breaks continuity, and B, like, his secondary mutation is just being a pain in the ass. Yes. Colossus, when he goes through, he comes back and he's just like a simple painter and Rogue ends up in the Savage Land. It's a really cool way of fucking with continuity without having to explain it too hard in a way that is established within continuity. And I love that. It's a great cheat. All right. Next question is from Moody Kittens. And I want to say I'm so excited about this question because it's rare that you get an opportunity to alienate this many people this hard this fast. Our listenership is like going to go down to zero after this episode. Who do you guys like better for Cyclops, Gene or Emma? I'm going to give some background first. First of all, if you've seen you know, the title art for the podcast, you know Scott and Jean are kind of our couple. Less because we've got a vested interest in them than because we've known each other since we were teenagers. Obviously, Cyclops is like my point of identification favorite character. Miles is super nice and occasionally gets possessed by cosmic forces. The usual. Yeah, it's cool. You've died like, what, four times now? Uh, five. Nice. My answer in terms of the comic is, is basically whatever's being written better. That said... Again, I'm going to piss everyone off and say that my answer to this question, just purely favorites-wise, is actually Lee Forrester. You know, I'm going to agree, and I think it's, I think we just essentially said that our favorite partner for Buffy is Riley, but I'm okay with that. Whatever. Riley's awesome. Riley is awesome. He's so nice. So He's Lee, super nice. Lee Although Forrester. Lee Forrester is actually way, way more badass than Riley. Yeah, so she's like this, this ship captain that Cyclops ends up with when um, he, she when he has quits a shrimp boat. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And he gets a job for her, and they get sh- shipwrecked and have adventures. She's a person. She's a human. She's not tied to superhero stuff in any way and she's awesome and their relationship is really functional yes but of course things can't stay functional for very long in the marvel universe so they don't last for all that long but she was awesome yeah lee forrester is great she came back briefly a few years ago in a really really disappointing story but she's she's off having interdimensional adventures these days so like you do go lee (laughs) okay what's next mandarin one asks i am diving back into x-men thanks to you sweet could you recommend some Iceman and Nightcrawler stories? Uh, yeah, so Iceman, you know, he's very seldom a, a focal character, which I think is unfortunate, because as, as as our longtime listeners know, I, I freaking love Iceman. Didn't, well, wasn't there actually an Iceman limited series at some point? There was. It was okay. But I think my favorite series of Iceman stories, you mentioned you liked Early X-Factor before, and for those I of you... I love Early X-Factor. Yeah, for those of you who don't know, Early X-Factor was the original five X-Men getting back together and forming their own team when it looked like the X-Men at the time were dead. Which it is the happens. soap opera soap opera of X-Men books. Yeah, and Bobby is awesome in it. Like, he's got this great dynamic with Hank, which, I mean, I think you can't get Iceman right without having the Iceman-Beast dynamic work. You get to see some of his personal life. You get to find out that he, like, when he quit the X-Men, he just went to go back to being an accountant because he kind of likes that. I can see him liking an orderly world. Um, you see him getting flustered by Boom Boom and having his ice powers amplified by his guardian gods, and it's, it's great, great Iceman work in early X-Factor, recommended. Um, for Nightcrawler, well, I think he's really awesome in Uncanny X-Men in general when Claremont's writing, but probably my single favorite Nightcrawler story is also by Claremont, I believe, the uh, 1980s Nightcrawler miniseries, which is great. It feels very much like early Excalibur in that he's going around through a bunch of dimensions and just being like all swashbuckly and meeting all kinds of bizarre aliens and princesses. It's fun. I mean, it's really, I think a lot of the best Nightcrawler stories are the ones where he just gets to be dashing and awesome 
And he's one of those characters who supports lighthearted, fun adventure stories so well. Yeah, I mean, you can do the sort of broody religious thing with Nightcrawler, and that is a part of his character, but I think he's at his best when you can understand why the image-inducer person he always chooses to be is Errol Flynn. Because, yeah, he loves loving life. And he's charming and fun. Um, and that's and I, I'm going to add Excalibur to that list. Actually, Nightcrawler is is one of the main characters of Excalibur, and he is he is consistently splendid in it. Yeah, and Excalibur is sort of a silly swashbuckly book to begin with, so that fits very well. This is from James J. McGee. What are your thoughts on the Jason Aaron run of Wolverine and the X Men, or or Wolverine and the X Men Volume One? I guess now. I think that the Jason Aaron run on Wolverine and the X-Men is absolutely delightful. Yes. So when they announced Wolverine and the X-Men, Rachel and I were both a little concerned. We're like, oh man, it's going to be all gritty and dark and they're making him the leader of the team and that's dumb. It doesn't make sense because I mean, why would he be running a school and it's, oh God, it's just all these mandated events and I didn't, I didn't think schism made that much sense and this is like coming out of that and you know, now Wolverine is the good guy and he's everybody's best friend and he's the team character who, the, the loner who's on every team and now he runs a freaking school. Really? But as it turned out, it was X-Men at the most bizarre it had been in years like all this this super surreal strange stuff happens and it's 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 wonderful it's x-men at its most fun that has been in ages it also features my single favorite line of dialogue in the history of x-men which is um beast is teaching a class inside a human body like everyone's all shrunk down alien boy whose name i do not remember please stop punching the dna and see that's the thing it's not really a wolverine book it's about this whole new set of of weirdo teenagers at what's now the gene gray school it's fun and it's weird and it's over the top and the dialogue is fantastic. This series also has, and this is a sentence I never thought I'd say, I miss the viral marketing for this series because when they first launched it, all of the students at the school had Twitter accounts and they'd have these long conversations on every 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 new issue day and they were always really, like whoever was running those was great. What's next? David says, let's play pretend. Marvel has announced an X-Men limited series to run eight issues, and they're letting you decide the details. Who's your creative team? No, you may not pick yourself. Your lineup of X-Men and your villain. That is such a good question. I'm really happy about that question. Okay, so I thought about this for a long time. Uh, As you might imagine, we're not answering all of these off the cuff. So um, I thought about it, I thought about it. And so I think... um, To be fair, you think about this stuff anyway, though, right? All the time. Good, okay. I think my my, my team, I would want it to be a bunch of sort of like B-listers or even C-listers, like characters you just don't see nearly enough of or that have been really underdeveloped or used badly or are just new. So for me, it would be Rachel Summers, Longshot, Boom Boom, Sunspot, and Gold Balls. This would be such a good team. Because you think about it, among all of those, like Rachel Summers is probably the grown-up, and that right there tells you kind of the, the strange direction that, that, that this book could take. So villain, I'm thinking it's yet another Eric the Red, because you can never have enough Eric the Red. And what Eric the Red's doing this time is he's bringing back like shitty, forgettable Silver Age villains to fight them one at a time, so like Ogre and El Tigre and characters like that. Creative team-wise, I'm thinking writing by Anne Nascenti and uh, who, who did like the Longshot miniseries and a lot of other stuff, and art by Mike Allred, who's currently doing an awesome run of Silver Surfer. It sounds like you're basically looking for a reboot of Fallen Angels. I'm always looking for a reboot of Fallen Angels. Yeah, it kind of does sound like that, doesn't it? But it would be so good. Okay, what's yours? I'm going to cheat a little bit and say I'm not sure about lineup. It would be a teenager's book. And the reason that I'm not sure about lineup is that I feel like the person who I want to write this is someone who I so implicitly trust to put together something cool that like I don't want to limit that. Uh, the villain would be Doctor Doom, and it would be written by Jen Van Meter and drawn by Faith Aaron Hicks. It would be basically 
teenagers in difficult, weird situations, putting Dr. Doom up against freaked out but slightly silly kids is one of my favorite sticks in the Marvel Universe. Honestly, I'd also just like really like to see the two of them do a series together because I think they'd completely own it. Okay, so Pat Myers asked, Any idea why Nate Gray ditched his costume for a fishnet shirt and leather pants for a while? Other than to keep me buying a horribly written comic, that is. Um... So we should say who Nate Gray is first, very briefly. What's the real short version? Nate Gray is the Age of Apocalypse, artificially aged in a test tube kid of Cyclops and Jean Gray, who is now in the main Marvel Universe and currently running around with the New Mutants. He's sort of a very, very different version of Cable-ish. Younger and less covered in robots and guns. He's super angsty. This has never been officially explained. I choose to believe... That, that Nate Gray, as a refugee from the Age of Apocalypse, uh, which is, is the glamest dark future, occasionally gets homesick and chooses to dress in the clothing of his people, which is basic glam club clothes. And I choose to believe he was just playing a lot of Vampire the Masquerade at the time. They're not mutually exclusive. Quite true. So um, Moody Kittens again asks, is there a particular lineup of X-Men that you guys just love? Yeah, yeah. So for me, I mentioned that the Australia era, like the one with the Siege Perilous, is one of my favorites. So this was a cool lineup because it was a list of X-Men. It, it was sort of a combination of X-Men's standbys and characters you didn't see enough i always remember it in the four men and the four women because there were two issues back to back that were the four men going out drinking and the four women going out shopping which is much better than it sounds um yeah it's it's amazing it's subversive and bizarre yeah so we have uh, havoc and colossus and wolverine and Longshot. And we have Psylocke, before she was a ninja, and Rogue, and Dazzler, and Storm. And Rogue is also kind of Carol Danvers at this point. Right. It's a different dynamic than we've really seen before. They're in a really bizarre set of circumstances. They're in Australia, and the world thinks they're dead, so they're just dealing with a lot of very different stuff than they normally do. Um, Big fan of that one. How about you? See, for me, it's entirely dependent on how well they're being written. That said, and I, I don't know if they're my favorites, but I do have a consistent soft spot for the original five. All right, this is from Newtype S3. Rachel, what is your headcanon as to why Wolverine is on so many Marvel teams? I seem to recall this was mentioned once, but a, that a lack of time prevented you from going into it. Okay, I'm oh. really proud of this. Oh, boy. Um, they're all rogue. Uh, continue. There was a brief period of time when Rogue had access to all of the powers she'd absorbed, including shape-shifting and duplication from multiple man. Okay, I think I and see where this Wolverine's is going. And Wolverine's full power set. She can manifest multiple ones at once. Ah. Every Wolverine is an unreabsorbed rogue dupe from during that period with Wolverine's powers, abilities, and memories. So they're each rogue duplicating multiple man style into shape-shifted Wolverines. Yes. And whether or not this is the actual explanation, it is a feasible in-canon one. So wait, They're all we, rogue. Do we even know that, the, that there really is a real Wolverine at this point? No. Okay. All right, so... This is, an, uh, this is from, again, Quintessential Defenestration, who still has the best handle ever. Pretty um, much. So thoughts on the new Claremont Nightcrawler series and the recent Longshot miniseries? So um, Chris Claremont hasn't been doing a whole lot of writing for Marvel in the past years. Uh, he's currently writing an ongoing Nightcrawler series since Nightcrawler just came back from the dead in Amazing X-Men. It's okay. I... I wish I liked it better, to be honest. Um, I feel like Claremont was an incredibly strong writer in the 70s, and he's he's not as consistently strong these days, in my opinion. His work is still it's quite readable. It's, it's decent, but it, it doesn't have that unexpected quality to it. Like It's not as exciting as his old work was, for me personally. Well, I think it's the James Robinson problem, where he's created one definitive thing that set the bar so high for his other work that when he's just doing stuff well or acceptably, 
we have trouble accepting it because it's it's not groundbreaking and definitive. I think that may be part of it. And I mean, the series is still very new. I think we're, what, three issues in or something like that? Yeah, something like that. But the art is great. Uh, Jamie McKelvey is doing the covers, so they're, of course, beautiful. Yeah, so we're, 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 still, uh, we're still buying it right now. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see where it goes. I'm excited to see where it goes. So far, though, it's, I think, decent would be the way I would describe it. The recent Longshot series, on the other hand, is brilliant. It's called Longshot Saves the Marvel Universe. It's written by Christopher Hastings, who's best known for the adventures of Dr. McNinja. It's drawn by uh, Jacopo um, Kamani. It is so good. Longshot is one of those characters who is just consistently and catastrophically underwritten. And his powers, if you're not familiar with them are luck-based, where he gets this uncanny luck, but only if he's acting altruistically. This creates the potential for great sort of Rube Goldberg stories. Chris is the absolute master of the brick joke. You should probably explain you know, that. The, the joke where you, you set something up, five years later, suddenly it pays off. And the experience of reading it serially over months and then sitting down and rereading through the whole thing twice in a row completely changes it. The artist is terrific, and he understands what the primary defining factor of a long shot should be which is that of all of the pretty men in the marvel universe long shot is the prettiest he also typically has the most questionable hair he had the this great mullet in the first and nascenti art adams miniseries where he appeared and in this i can't even describe his haircut in this one but it's amazing like i I want that haircut the book opens up with him getting that haircut yeah he rocks it again it's just i think you know we talk about a lot about x-men and soap opera but there are characters in series who are at their best in lighthearted stories. And I think that's a direction that superhero comics especially moved away from collectively for a while. And I'm so excited to see it coming back. And this is a great example of that. I cannot recommend this series more highly. You don't really need to have read a lot of X-Men. You don't really even need to know that much about the Marvel Universe because part of the point of it is that it's it's complex and bizarre and no one's quite sure what's going on. And it, it works exquisitely well. Yes. Okay, this is from Spuds Fan. What are your favorite and least favorite X-Men codenames? I mean, I think for both of us, the answer to both of those questions is Adam x the extreme adam x although a close runner-up for favorite is strong guy if you can choose your own name and you're a strong guy why wouldn't you call yourself strong guy that's great i love him and and i love it that he specifically chooses it to be contrary they're like really you can't have that as a codename he's like nope nope strong guy my favorite codename in the entire marvel universe however hands down is from a comic called runaways uh which is about a bunch of kids who find out their parents are all supervillains and there's this little girl in it named molly hayes who's a super strong mutant and she's like how old do you think she is like she's like eight eight or or something and she decides that she is going to be called princess powerful and so she goes by Princess Powerful. And later on, they come up with another name for her. But in my heart, she will always be Princess Powerful. It, it especially, um, an adult, a, a sort of evil mind-controlled adult version of that character as a time traveler has shown up um, recently-ish in, in current X-Men continuity. And I, I really, I'd like to think that that's still her code name. I think so. Like her, the, 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 in, you know, in the gritty dark future, she is still Princess Powerful. <laughs> What's next? So speaking of current stuff, uh, Gregory Cameron asks, how do you feel about what is currently going on in the X titles, specifically Bendis's books? All right. So very brief summary of where things are for anybody who's not reading <laughs> current books. Summary. I can totally do this. I am a <laughs> All professional. Right. All right. Um, so right now, the X-Men are currently split in two. You have Wolverine running the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning, which is like a replacement for the Xavier Institute, um, since Professor Xavier is currently dead. And you have Cyclops running another team of X-Men that's essentially a paramilitary, almost revolutionary, perhaps even terrorist organization. For legal and PR purposes, Wolverine is playing Professor X, Cyclops is playing Magneto. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's not a direct parallel, but overall, that's a good way to generalize it. And I think that's a 
fascinating dynamic. I, I actually really like the way they play off each other. I like that the characters' moves in those directions have, I, I feel, really been earned over the last 10 or so years of storytelling. I don't think they felt abrupt. I don't entirely agree with that. I think a lot of the instigating events that led to that dynamic did feel really abrupt and editorially mandated. I will say, however, that now that we're there, it's, an, it's a really interesting situation to play in, and it's leading to a lot of really good stories. Cool. And yeah, the other big thing that's going on, as we've alluded to a couple episodes ago, is that the original five X-Men from the 60s or 60s yeah, as teenagers era, yeah have been brought forward to the present so now we have those teenage versions of the original x-men running around with the surviving current ones as well i have mixed feelings about this my one biggest complaint is the extent to which the series lean on one another and cross over it would be very very hard to follow any one of them if you weren't following at least two or three books right now that bothers me as an ongoing status quo. I don't think that's something that publishers should do. I think if you have a crossover that lasts a year, it should just be one series. Yeah, I think there's some validity to that. I mean, frequently when I'm reading Bendis' X-Men books, which are Uncanny X-Men and All-New X-Men, it can be kind of hard for me to remember which one of them I'm reading at any given time because so much stuff goes back and forth. That said, they're very well written. The art is great. You know, if you like Bendis, you're going to like them. It's got really, really good moments that make the frustrating bits in the crossover parts pretty consistently worth it, at least for me. Yeah, totally. So overall, I think X-Men's in a pretty good place these days. Oh, and the art is superlative. Absolutely. The art is like Chris Piccolo and Stuart Eminem and basically everyone who is amazing. Um, Sarah Pacelli, uh, she was doing Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy, but they crossed over. She should just draw everything forever. Uh, so this question... This is our final question. And this is... Okay, so check this out. This is questions being asked by Platoclops, whose user icon is a Cyclops that is a platypus. So it is so awesome. <laughs> Platoclops asks, if there was an alternate universe where the X-Men were talking animals, which animals would best represent some of the best X-Men characters? And I feel weird answering this question because I feel like just by dint of who's asking it, you have clearly put more thought into this than we have, and you are clearly better qualified to answer it. That said, we will do our best. So uh, I remember this thing. So I inherited all of, or not inherited, my father's still, you know, just fine. But um, he gave me a bunch of his comic stuff when I was younger. And one of the things he gave me was a big stack of posters. And one of those was a poster advertising some of Marvel's, like, uh, kids' comics they were doing, which at the time, the ones they were promoting were Rocky and Bullwinkle and Alf. And so there's this iconic X-Men cover, which is the X-Men of the time looking all badass. It's I think it's by John Romita. And it's like, go ahead, mess with us, make our day, is the caption. And so they redid that cover, but except, like, Bullwinkle, was Colossus and Wolverine was Alf, which was the greatest thing I've seen in my freaking life. So that's what I think of, even though those aren't exactly animal animals. There's an artist whose name escapes me at the moment um, who did a series of prints of X-Men as dinosaurs, and I don't remember all of them, but I remember being really happy that Cyclops was a Parasaurolophus because that is that is my favorite dinosaur because they, they look confused all the time. <laughs> that seems really appropriate. It's true. There, there have also been a number of, of animal variant covers recently. Yeah, there was, there's a, a whole bunch of them, and I know Katie Cook did some of them, Scotty Young did some of them. I don't remember who's who on those, but I will I will totally go with that. Um, there's also an artist named Janet Lee, who, um, who's, who's best known for Return of the Dapper Men, who did a series of prints of, of superheroes as animals. They are amazing. She's, she's a phenomenal painter and, and uh, decoupage and collage artist, especially. And so these are you know, beautiful art objects, but they're also things like a wolverine with wolverine's claws, being a badger. <laughs> yeah, Wolverine is obviously a Wolverine, not a goddamn wolf. <laughs> Wolverines are really unpleasant. They are. Um, for the last thing I want to say, I don't know why I could not explain the logic behind this, but for me, Professor Xavier would be an awesome puffer fish. Like, same wheelchair, same blanket over part of him, same weird green suit around him, but a puffer fish. And then he gets mad at the X-Men and he goes like, poof, and puffs out, and there's bikes everywhere. It'd be great. Huh. That's an appropriate response to that. 
so yeah, I think that's all the time we, uh, we, we've had. Hopefully that was, uh, informative. I'm not sure that it was informative, but hopefully you've had a good time listening it to it. It was anyway. informative. What, yeah, that, that the information that you gleaned from it will be useful to you under very specific and somewhat bizarre circumstances. Exactly. And so... Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded at the Roseway in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out online at welcometothatwholething.com. As always, if you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes and or Stitcher, and check out our shop at rachelandmiles.redbubble.com for t-shirts and stickers. You can find a visual companion to this episode, as well as blog posts, fan art, and additional fun at rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be lacing up our fanciest lingerie to tackle one of the, maybe the greatest X-Men arcs of all time. The Dark Phoenix Saga. See you then. (laughs) 